Thank you, Nate. Hey, thanks for joining us. If you're joining us online, I'm glad you're here with us. So we were missionaries for a couple of years down in Chile. Uh, I didn't, just didn't have a lot of friends, so I compensated for my loneliness by going to McDonald's. They had a McDonald's down there. I was there five out of seven days a week. And I'm going to test your Spanish here. Here was my pretty standard order in McDonald's. You ready? Una Coca-Cola grande y un pie de manzana. That's a large Coke and an apple pie, and it was good. It was good. I just want to tell you, it was good. But there's a lot of sugar, too. And my wife tried to warn me. She said, I don't know if that's a good idea, but, but Hope, it's good. Well, while we were down there, Hope became pregnant with our first child, Chris. He was actually born down there. And we decided we ought to up our life insurance because we just basically had enough to, to bury us. And we thought, okay, if we're bringing a kid into the world. So I was home uh, for my parents' surgery. So I did the blood draw and I got the results back. And I'm 38 years old and I'm rejected. I'm rejected for an increase in life insurance. Wow, what is the deal? Well, it, we got back to the States and I found out I got the medical report. Your triglycerides are supposed to be like 200 or below, 300 or 400, or you're kind of borderline. I was 800 and something. Medical people go, wow, you're still alive. I stopped going to McDonald's, by the way, after that. I sure did. Um, but my point is, my love of una Coca-Cola grande y un pan de masada, it was physically killing me. Physically killing me. In a similar way, our love of the world can do incredible spiritual damage. And I want us to think about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 18 and we're going to go to chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to wrestle with this question, what's wrong with loving the world? What's wrong with falling in love with this world and all it has to offer? So as you're turning there, let me kind of set the stage. John, Jesus' disciple, has been exiled. He has been banished to the island of Patmos because of his faith. And while he's there, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 tell us, he has an apocalypse. He has a vision. We talked about even using a political cartoon. A political cartoonist will use a vision to communicate a truth. God is going to use symbols to communicate truth. But these symbols are not for us to go, whoa, I wonder what that's about, and try and figure out a timeline, and when does this happen, and when does that? No, 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 no. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3 tells us these symbols are a prophetic word for seven churches. We understand prophecy tells the future, but more often than not, it tells us how to live. And these symbols are a warning and an encouragement to stay faithful to God in the midst of persecution. Verse 4 tells us, this is also a letter. This is Pastor John communicating the vision prophetically to these seven churches because he's shepherding them. He cares for them. And last week, we began to unpack that vision. And we, as we did, we understood there were seven churches, and we looked at the first three. And we're going to look at the next two today, and we'll look at the final two next Sunday. But I want to review the first part of that vision because what... Jesus, this is going from God the Father to Jesus to the angel to John. What God the Father and Jesus are communicating is, in the time of trial, I don't want you looking for an out. Because an out's not going to be there necessarily. But I want you to know that I 
am enough for anything you face. And this vision that Jesus gives of himself to John is what John holds out to the specific churches. So I want to read that vision again, starting in chapter 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance were in, which are in Jesus. So John said, I am in this. This is not this tribulation I'm writing about. It's not an academic exercise. It's, I'm, it's not an academic exercise. I'm in the midst of a tool. Where was I? I'm on the island called Patmos. Why? Because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. They wanted to shut me up. And because I was so old, they decided they wouldn't execute me, but they would just exile me. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, the distance between Patmos and Ephesus is about 50 miles. That would be the closest one. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum. And we looked at those three churches last week. And to Thyatira and Sardis. And we'll look at those two churches today. And lastly, to Philadelphia and Laodicea. We'll look at those two churches next week. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll understand the seven golden lampstands taken from the book of Zechariah represent the seven churches. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw like one, like a son of man, taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and 10, much of this we'll see. Daniel talked about a heavenly figure coming who he, he titled the son of man. And the Jewish people were always, well, who is that? Well, Jesus claimed that title. He is the one who will be coming back one day as the Son of Man. And then we see the Son of Man clothed in royalty, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden stash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, significant of the divine, like snow. And his eyes, and we will come back to this, were like a flame of fire. Again, Jesus, when he addresses the churches, will... Reference part of this vision, and, and this will be to the church at Thyatira. And his feet were like burnished bronze, a s symbol of uh, stability and strength, when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, powerful, his voice. And in his right hand, he held out seven stars. Again, we will find out seven angels, one for each of the churches. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And that is to say, these churches thought Rome might have the final word in judgment. And Jesus says, no, 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 I speak it. My word is like a sharp two-edged sword. I pronounce judgment and it happens. I have the final word, not Rome. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. God always was glorious. Well, John, verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, kind of like Ezekiel and Isaiah in the Old Testament. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. That is God's number one command to his people, do not be afraid. Why? I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. The living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. There is one who has come back from the dead, certified dead, put him on a cross, stuck a tomb in his side, showed him to be dead, put him in a tomb. Put a seal over it, put a rock over it, put a Roman guard in front of it. They couldn't hold him. I've come back from the dead. No one else. I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Not Rome. Me. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Apparently, each church had an angel. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So having that, given that introduction, I then want to turn specifically to Jesus. Remember, this goes from God the Father to Jesus to an angel to John. God the Father, Jesus' words for the church at Thyatira. Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And now he's going to quote or reference John 1, 14 and 15. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says. I got eyes like flame of fire. I see everything. You put up a smoke screen. You put out an outward appearance. I see right through that. And my feet being burnished bronze, I'm stable. I'm strong. Nothing's going to knock me over. Here's what he says, verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So your deeds are showing signs of health. But, verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who is Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Jezebel is almost certainly not her real name. It's a symbolic name taken from the Old Testament queen Jezebel, who led Israel into immorality and idolatry. So this woman, this prophetess, is following in that track, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, when we talked about the life circumstances, we said there was emperor worship, six of the seven Cities had a temple in which you worshiped the emperor. He was the supposedly proclaimed giver of the gifts of the gods. But then there was also gods for every trade guild. Thyatira is a city that is stock on the rise. They are known for their trade guilds. They're known for their merchants and their craft and their gold. It's a developing community, if you will. It's a place you'd want to live. So you go there for the comfort and the wealth and place. But, but if you're going to work, you need to be part. You need to have a trade. And that's all good, except the trade, and I'm just throwing out a name, of the woodworkers. We have a specific God. And we get together every so often. I don't know if it's once a month or whatever it is. And we have a, a feast in commemoration of this God because that God is providing for us. And you tell me you can't attend that feast? Well, I don't know that we can have you as a part of our, our guilt because we don't want to anger the gods. If you want to keep practicing this trade, well, you'll need to be here or sadly we can't have you. And, 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 and Jezebel, and we'll talk about what it might look like, is saying, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. Will God judge idolatry? Yep. Is he just looking to drop the hammer? Nope. He's given her time to repent. And she's chosen not to. At some point, the righteousness of God says, I'm going to act. And that is what happens. She's thrown her on the bed of sickness. And I will kill her children with pestilence. So there's another generation that's buying this. 
Why? And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one to you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Deep things of Satan. Why, why might Jesus, to the angel, to John, use that term? This is speculation. But this prophetess is probably proclaiming that she is teaching deep things. She's got an insight. Like what? And again, speculation. Uh, Paul, years earlier, had written a letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 8, he talked about people giving up their freedom in order not to make a weaker brother stumble. You have the freedom to eat anything. And there's a verse in there, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, that says, in reality, an idol is nothing. So let's take that verse out of its context, and let's bring it over here. We're having a festival. We're, we're declaring absolutely that this God, Zeus, or whoever it is, is providing for us. We say, hey, there's no thing like an idol. So you Christians, you believers in Jesus, go ahead. Go ahead. Just fall back on this verse. That's a deep teaching. And John, through Jesus, through God the Father, say, no, that teaching is of Satan. Remember, God has eyes that are what? Blazing fire. They see right through. So this smoke screen, this, I, I see your motivation in your heart. Ultimately, you don't want to trust me as your provision. Verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, we see that word. We've seen it with every church. We're going to be called to overcome. And he who keeps my deeds, and this is a loose paraphrase of Psalm 2, 8, 9, until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, I also have received authority from my Father. When we roll the book of Revelation forward, chapters 4 and 5, after he gets done with the churches, we'll talk about what's going on in heaven. And then 6 through 22, we'll talk about how God is going to bring heaven to earth. And there will be a series of judgments. And in the end, God will bring his kingdom. And he said, those who are faithful will rule with me. That's what he's telling the church at Thyatira as he quotes Psalm 289. This is a constant theme that God's people, one day when he sets up his kingdom, will rule again. And that's what he's holding out. People, don't buy these deep things of Satan. Continue to trust me as your provision. Not only that, says I, verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Now, if you read six commentators, you're going to get six opinions. And what is the morning star? It's some kind of spiritual blessing, benefit. I think, think, operative word, think. Jesus said, I'll give you myself, but that's an opinion. Then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's work. Be intentional about understanding God. So after I got done with seminary, Hope and I went down to Latin America, to Costa Rica, to learn Spanish, and we would go to the institute, and then we would, we would have a route we would do three times a week uh, where we'd go to these shopkeepers, and we'd speak, and there were questions, and they would answer us. So let me tell you how the first month sounded to me when I would ask my questions. So I would ask these people questions, and they would answer me, and it would sound like this. And then they'd say, me entiende, do you understand me? Oh, see. 
that was a lie. I didn't understand a thing. But I really wanted to get an ear for Spanish. So I kept going. And then in the next couple of three weeks, I would start to hear words. And then two or three weeks later, I got phrases. And by about 10 weeks, I can understand 95% of what's being said to me on the street. I was intentional. Now if I listen to Spanish radio, I can't hear much because I've lost my ear. I, I, we, need to be, we, need to be, we need to step into God. I want to understand. I want to hear you. He who has an ear to hear, a desire, who will stay with it. Let him hear. Andy, 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 Andy. This is a church almost 2,000 years ago. What? The scene, the place changes, but the human heart does not. And we want what the world has to offer. And a lot of that comes with affluence. It comes with money. It comes with prestige. Oh, you got one of those. Oh, you work there. Oh. You, you can afford 1,800 square feet, oh, but we only need 1,500 square feet. Well, why would you buy 1,800 square feet? Because it looks good. We, we, it doesn't change. And to do that, then we work longer, or we bill for hours at things, or we take things that don't belong to us. Why? Because uh, we think life is in, in, in the material. And Jesus says, don't compromise. I've got something greater. I've got me. I've got me. Well, there's a second church he talks to, and this is the church at Sardis. And where Thyatira, we could argue, might be a church on the rise, if you will. Thyatira's best days are behind her. It's 600 B.C. They were one of the last holdouts against the uh, Greek Empire. They, they held on. They, they have a strong history, but they're crumbling. And, and they want to hold on to this vestige of who they are. Jesus doesn't have much of anything good to say to Sardis. To the angel of the church at Sardis, write, he who has seven spirits. Now, I, I think, again, I told you, John, through Jesus, through God the Father, will use seven metaphorically. It's the number of completion. Seven spirits talked in the past. Could that be the Holy Spirit? Maybe. Somebody else argues it might be a heavenly entourage, the number seven that being one of completion. Um, and the seven stars, that is from Revelation 1, verse 16, which is the one angel for each church. What, what this is saying is, I've got spiritual resources for you. But he says this, I know your deeds, and you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. You have this reputation. You were once a great city, and you think you're alive. But you know what Jesus said spiritually? You're dead. If you ever been around a dead, dead person, they're not responsive. You can poke them. Hey, hey, hey. They don't do, get right up. Hey, hey. No, no, they're not responding. Jesus said, you think you're alive because of the position you have, but spiritually, you're dead. You're unresponsive to me. Wake up and strengthen things that remain. So there was a time you were strong in the Lord, but it, that is slipping away. Strengthen that which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So, verse 3, remember that you have what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. That's turn around. Therefore, if you do not wake up, if you do not become responsible, I will come like a thief. 
and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Common metaphor for Jesus' return, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. And Jesus used it in different places. And he said to the church at Sardis, I will come unexpectedly. Now, here's why that's significant in their background. They were conquered on a couple of different occasions because they weren't diligent. There was a crack in the wall that they didn't watch, and one person came through and opened the city gates, and the foreign army came in. Another time, they went over a tower. I... So Jesus planned on that. You've, you've got a history of not being diligent. You better be diligent with me. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, not compromised, and they will walk with me in white. Remember, white is a metaphor for victory, for they are worthy. Here's our word again, he who overcomes. We're all going to have, we're going to be challenged in our allegiance to Christ. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Whoa, 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 pastor, does that mean you can lose your salvation? You can erase your name out of the book of life. This is apocalyptic literature. We're not going to make, take theology from apocalyptic literature, but it is a picture, a symbol that Jesus is trying to communicate. Remember, at one time, you seemed to have had it, but you're losing it. There was one time it seemed like your name was written in the book of life. Not so much anymore. Are we drawing theology from that? No. Is this a warning to be faithful? Yeah, it is. He continues at the end of that verse. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Went out for football my freshman year in high school, and I don't know, there were 60 or 80 kids. So it was clearly we were going to have an A and a B team. And we had a, a week in shorts, then we had a week in pads. And I think the beginning of week three, the coach is coming. We know who's coaching the A team and coaching the B team. And the coach says, I want so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And you're hoping your name gets called because you want to be the A-team. And McFarland and so-and-so and so-and-so. Okay, we got the call. This coach has confessed us as he wants part of them. Well, there's something a lot more at stake here than being part of the A-team or the B-team in football. It's are you included in one that Jesus would, would call and say, come with me. Again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we're developing our ear for God. That's too bad. We have to break the seven churches up. But for the sake of time, we do. Because these are two of the more influential churches. One is kind of stock on the rise. One is headed and is coming down. But next week, we will look at a very, very poor church in Philadelphia. And yet God, through Jesus, through the angel of John, will hold the church at Philadelphia up. They don't have much influence from a world perspective. But these churches that are influential, term intentionally, in quotes, God calls one of them dead. You're not, you're not responsive to me. What's happened? And they love. They love what the world has to offer. And it's eroding their commitment to Christ. So I'm asking this question, what does our love of the world do? What's wrong with that? The degree to which we love our world will compromise our commitment to Christ. Our love, our passion, our desire for the world will, comp will compromise our commitment to Christ. Well, Andy, yeah, I mean, we know that. That message is throughout the Bible. Well, there's a reason it's throughout the Bible. <laughs> it needs to be heard. And if ever there's a place, a culture, a nation in which it needs to be heard, it's this, perhaps the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. 
that tells us you need more. So many ways I could look at that. But, you know, movies are, are somewhat telling. And I'm going to go back a number of years. But 1987, the movie Wall Street came out. Michael Douglas is a, a tycoon, and he's mentoring Charlie Sheen and how to be rich. You know, he's a stockbroker, and they're at a, a board meeting. And he's speaking to the board, and he says, greed, for the lack of a better word, is good. Greed works. Greed satisfies. Greed clarifies. And with a quote that's come out of that movie is, greed is good. And it works its way through our culture, and subconsciously we think, we need to hear Jesus is holding out himself. Later, 1996, Jerry Maguire comes out. Tom Cruise plays an agent, and Cuba Gooding Jr. is his star athlete client, and they're at a point of discontent, and there's a phone call, and, and Tom Cruise is trying to keep him, and Cuba Gooding is on the phone saying, see if you can answer this, show me the money. Show me the money. And he has Tom Cruise say it, and you say it. Let me hear you say it. Show me the money, and it pervades our culture. And everything that goes with money, it buys us convenience, it buys us prestige. It... But it erodes, it decays, that love of money, our commitment to Christ. Yeah, I was faced with that when I went to college. I had my own need for money in that my dad had lost his job and we had had an unstable future. So I, I went to school wanting to secure my livelihood and got an engineering degree because there were six jobs for every engineer, 12 if you were petroleum or chemical. I was a chemical engineer. But along the way, I come to Christ and, and I get involved in this group called Campus Crusade and I really like it, but I find out they're staff members they have to ask people for money. And I thought, I didn't come to school to ask people for money. So as a junior in college, I'm very involved. And I, I, I have my first little crush, my Campus Crusade crush. And I go out with this young lady a couple times. And she is going to graduate and go on staff. And she asks me, like on our, one of our dates, she says, Andy, would you ever think of going on staff? <laughs> no. I mean, if ever there was a time to lie, that was it. But no, no, I would never do this. She wisely made a decision to quit dating me. It was a good decision. I wouldn't have recommended dating me at that point. <laughs> Three years later, I, gradu I graduate. I go to graduate school because I don't know what I want to do. And uh, after my first year in graduate school, I go on this summer missions trip. And I come back, and all I want to do is go on staff with Campus Crusade. So I worked through my second year of graduate school. I got two semesters left, and I got a problem. My debt is too high. I'm $1,800 over the debt limit. So with my campus director, we pen... Uh, letters to, to some Christian businessmen, and they all say, no, 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 no. So three years almost to the month after I had the conversation with the young lady, would you ever come on, come on staff? No, no way. I'm sitting in the car with my campus director at his house. They said, Andy, you know, I just think, I just think you need to look at getting a job and paying down your debt and then trying to come on staff in a couple years. And you know what I did? I started crying. <laughs> And that night I thought, what happened in these three years where I would have said, no way, to I'm devastated. What happened is I met Jesus. And I fell in love with Jesus and I fell in love with his people. And I wanted to serve him. This is not a 
pitch to be a missionary, but this is a pitch. What is going on with your values? Is your love of Jesus lessening your desire for the stuff the world has to offer? So I start interviewing because I have no options, and I get two office visits set up with IBM as a marketing rep and then Arthur Anderson. They were a big eight accounting firm, and they were starting a consulting division, and I'd be a programmer, and you kind of work your way up to hopefully be a systems operator someday. And then in the middle of that, a fellow student says, I've got a friend who's got money, and, and so I can make the debt limit. I begin the um, application process with Campus Crusade and eventually come on staff. But, but in that, all these guys that I'm graduating with, my MBA class, are saying, well, which one are you going to take? Are you going to take IBM or Arthur Anderson? I, I say, neither. And they say, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to do this ministry thing. And they say, you're crazy. You're crazy. And I thought, yeah, but there's different values. I have met Jesus. And he's changed who I am and what matters to me from the inside out. That's my story. What's yours? Is Jesus the person making a difference in what you value? Does it Jesus make it easy for you to say, no, no, no? Because that's what's not happening in Thyatira and Sardis. And Jesus says, I've got a problem. Are we falling in love with Jesus so that things of the world don't matter? Here's where we're going. We're going to do the next two churches next week. February 27th, I want to take a one-week break. We're going to talk about an opportunity we have in Africa, and then we're going to continue in Revelation. Chapters 4 and 5 are going to talk about what's going on in heaven. And John, when he's in heaven in this vision, is going to hear of the lion who is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Those are militaristic metaphors, conquerors. And then he's going to look and he's going to see a slain lamb. And the message is, church, you will conquer as you follow your Savior in laying down your life for your enemies. Verses, chapters 6 through 22, we'll talk about what's going on in heaven, and there will be various levels of persecution, some targeted, some less. But what will happen is the world will shake their fist at God and not repent. But what will get to them is the suffering church. The people, they don't get it. You're that serious about Jesus, you'd give up your job? You're that serious about Jesus, you'd give up your life? Jesus, I can conquer. I can go forward through that. But if he doesn't have our heart, if there's something we love more than Jesus, that's going to keep him from working through us. Does he have our heart? Has he changed our value system? It was about two weeks after midterm grades had come out my freshman year. And midterm grades at that time went home to parents. And I have finished class, and I walk into my dorm room, and I see, who do I see? I see Mr. and Mrs. Wood, the parents of my roommate Jim Wood. Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Wood, I, good to see you. And his dad says, yeah, Jim wouldn't come home to visit us, so we've come to visit him. And Jim had a 1.8 at midterm. That's the wrong dean's list. Do you follow me? They say, Andy, you don't have to leave. And I think, oh, yes, I do. Jim says, no, 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 you can stay. 
I thought, no, 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 I can't. Do you have some place to go? I thought, yes, it's a big campus. I will find some place to go. And out the door I went. And I can only imagine what they said. But Jim, in the first eight weeks, he had liked partying, and he had liked socializing, and he had done zero, zero studying. And his parents said, your priorities need to change, or you're going to be coming home with us. Well, Jim got it together. He got a 2.8 that semester, and he graduated, and he went to graduate school, and he did fine. But he needed a little visit from his parents. You understand? God's given us a little visit. Here, a little visit. Are you falling in love with the wrong things? Does the material matter more than Jesus? What's wrong with falling in love with the world? Love of the world will compromise our commitment to Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that you are more than the world has to offer. You offer yourself. And you give life where the world cannot. Lord, forgive us for falling in love with that which will not sustain, with that which will not last. Lord, we've considered your visit through the word. and We want to change our ways. Would you empower a spirit to do that, that we'd fall in love with you? In Jesus' name, amen.